Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Inspire Churches podcast. We're a church in Union City that loves Jesus. Our hope is that you'd be inspired to grow in God's Word as reflected in loving Christ more and more every day. So wherever you are, be a light. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspirechurches.com. You know, we start our Advent series, and really Advent is this time to reflect on the coming of Jesus Christ uh, in human flesh as a baby. And uh, in the Old Testament, the prophets, they looked forward to that day. They, they prophesied or they foretold of a king. Uh, Micah called, called the very place this king would be born. Micah prophesied it would be Bethlehem. And we have the beautiful experience of looking back at what they look forward to. And we get to see the realization of what they hoped for, what they longed for. But I also kind of want to maybe turn your attention before we get into today's specific message to our unique position that we are in as the church. We not only get to look back at Christ's first coming, but we also get to enter into that longing for his second coming when he comes back. And we believe that he will be king of kings and he will, the government will be upon his shoulders and we'll finally be able to live in peace and light and love and hope. And so we look back and we commemorate his birth, but we also look ahead. Amen. And we look forward to, we yearn, like we, just like the prophets of old, we long for the fulfillment of Christ's return. And so what a beautiful time it is maybe to overcome the chaos and commercialization of the holidays and to commemorate the coming of Christ. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, open with us or open with me to Matthew chapter one, verse 17. We'll also have it for you up here on the screen. Uh, as I bring my Bible up, I am uh, reminded of my age. Uh, the print is getting smaller and smaller. And I'm not sure if that's what this does or if that's just my eyes. But I'm just going to believe that it's dark in here, you know. And, uh, and so uh, I might use my confidence monitor instead. <laughs> Usually I have it written for me on my iPad, but I did not this time. And so if you have your Bibles, feel free to join us or you can follow along on the screens. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1 through 17. Now the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. These first few chapters are going to recount, they're called the birth narrative of Jesus. They're going to tell the story of the birth of Christ and the surrounding events. Matthew, both Matthew and Luke do this. And, uh, but this first chapter in this first 17 verses is peculiar, and you're going to find out why. And so again, we're going to take the next four weeks and kind of anticipate Christmas with a sermon series, and it's going to be based on these 17 verses. And so uh, uh, Matthew chapter 1, 1 through 17, uh, reads like this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, 
and Zerah by Tamar and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, and Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and, the fa- and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon, verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatel, and Sheatel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Ab- Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim and Achim, the father of Eliud and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, uh, and Eleazar, the father of Mathen, and Mathen, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, <clears throat> who is called Christ. Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 <clears throat> generations. You're welcome. <clears throat> for many of you who read your Bible in a year, I just read a genealogy for you, which you probably skip. So you're welcome. Uh, today, we begin uh, the Advent season And as I have been saying, we are anticipating the coming of Christmas. And so we've decided to reflect on the greatest genealogy in human history. The genealogy of Jesus uh, reported to us by the gospel writer, Matthew. Now, this genealogy features 42 generations spanning over 2,000 years, literally each name telling the whole story of redemptive history in each individual life. It's a genealogy full of names you might have heard of. Abraham, David, Solomon, and Ruth. And it's also a genealogy full of names that you maybe never heard of, like Tamar, Abijah, Mathen, and Zadok. And though many modern readers have developed, I don't know, the bad habit of skipping over biblical genealogies, and trust me, I have done it and I understand, we're going to do you a favor in the next few weeks, and we're just going to highlight a few key names. And you see, every name, whether you recognize it or not, has a story. And every story represents a life. Filled with pain and pleasure, filled with sorrow and joy. Like everyone in this room, every name represents a story and every story represents a life that struggled through 
the ups and downs, but ultimately every name and every life paved the way for the coming of Jesus Christ. And so before we kind of dive maybe into the weeds of the genealogy, I just want to share with you three ways Jesus's genealogy might encourage your faith during this holiday season, all right? And so maybe you came in today discouraged. Maybe you came in today disenfranchised, disillusioned. Thank you so much. Uh, But I want to share with you maybe three ways Jesus's genealogy might encourage your faith before you leave. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Mama. Number one, the careful consideration of every name shows that this is no fairy tale. Jesus, though you may have problems with him, or maybe it's not him, it's the people who follow him, but you can include me in that as well at times. But Jesus is not a mythological character who kind of just showed up out of nowhere like Hercules or Hermes. Right? Matthew doesn't begin the life of Christ with like once upon a time. But instead, he begins the life of Jesus with a careful consideration and record of Jesus's family tree grounding our Savior, our Messiah, our Lord and King in human history. And so debate what you want to debate and say what you want to say, but the text records the family line, the names and the tree that grounds our Savior in human history. I love this. Let your faith be strengthened this season as you realize that our faith has receipts. And if that doesn't encourage you, maybe this second item might encourage you. Jesus' genealogy also reminds us that God can bring beauty from brokenness. This might be my, my favorite part of it, the genealogy. You might ask, well, what, how is that possible? Listen, the holidays are incredible. My family is here, but families can be difficult, yeah. right? Yeah. Amen? Yeah. I mean, you know, some of you maybe didn't celebrate with your families because there might be some things there. Maybe some of you celebrated, but you forced the smile. Um. But if you think, if you thought that your family had dark secrets and big problems this holiday season, allow the dysfunction of Jesus' family line to minister to your heart. Are you with me? Yeah. Like, like, and here's the thing is, like, maybe in our families there might be some secrets, but like Jesus' family got secrets, but it was all exposed on the pages. Like, and that's a, another thing I love about the scripture. It doesn't hide or minimize the sin of these individuals. If you inspect Jesus' genealogy a little bit closer here in Matthew, you will find prostitutes. You will find kings who were murderers. You will find insiders and outsiders. Listen, nobody would have expected the sinless son of God to descend from offenders and survivors. 
Like nobody would expect the sinless son of God to descend from abusers and the abused. And yet, Jesus' genealogy is a reminder that no family is so lost that it cannot be found. Now, this might be offensive, and I understand why. This is a hard thing, but Jesus' genealogy is also a reminder that no sin so gross that grace can't cover. No sin gross for grace. No trauma so harmful that cannot be healed. Jesus' genealogy preaches the good news of the gospel that can bring joy and restoration and redemption out of chaos and sin. I wish I had time to go over each name, but that'd be a year long, maybe possibly longer sermon series. And we only have four weeks. Number one, your Jesus is grounded in history. Number two, beauty can come from brokenness. And, and finally, number three, Jesus is above all, Jesus' genealogy reminds us that God is faithful. Yeah. Thank you, Lord. That God can be trusted. Um, and, and my prayer is that you would never look at a biblical genealogy the same again. Now, I doubt you're going to walk out of here now excited to read genealogies. I get that. But my prayer is that you never look at a biblical genealogy the same again because with every endless list of names that you cannot pronounce comes a record of God's faithfulness to his word. Every genealogy, every name declares God finishes what he starts and God always keeps his promises. In fact, the, the scripture tells us that God watches over his word throughout generations, ensuring that his word would come to pass and that even when we break our promise, he remains true to his. Amen. And so with that being said, I'm going to pray and then we're going to speed through this and I believe the Lord is going to speak. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the beautiful stories that we learn lessons. Thank you for the prophets that spoke of the coming of Jesus Christ, but thank you for the genealogies that grounds your word in history, human history. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, you would do what only you could do. Would you illuminate the text and would you speak to every heart and mind in this room so that when everyone leaves this place, they can say, I, I heard a word from the Lord. The Lord spoke to me this morning. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So I, I've entitled kind of this first installment of our Advent series, this message today, really after one of the first names in the genealogy, and I've entitled it uh, uh, The Son of Abraham or, or The Seed of Abraham. Now, if you've been with us for some time, you know that in the past couple of months, we went through the book of Genesis. We went through the first three chapters of Genesis. Um, and so what I want to do is I kind of want to give you a big picture, just kind of a recap. And if today's kind of your first day, kind of catch you, bring you into that. And ultimately, we're going to kind of work our way to this man named Abraham. Amen. I promise I'll get you out of here on top for lunch. 
in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Y'all remember that. Most of you should know like, that's Genesis 1-1. Now, what we see in day six, God creates male and female. And so in the beginning, we see God delegating his authority, right? God is king. He, de- he delegates his authority to rule on the earth to his vice regents, Adam and Eve. And he gives them a project to multiply, to be fruitful, and to take the garden and expand it throughout the world. Now, you know the story, famous story, Genesis 3. We see that humanity forfeits that authority to a seditious snake, a talking snake. And if you've got questions about that, you can go back and listen to the podcast. We unpacked what does that mean about a talking snake. But nonetheless, we see that these human, they were delegated royal authority, but they forfeited that authority to a seditious snake submitting to what was supposed to submit to them. Like if you remember, God gave man dominion over all the beasts of the field and every creeping thing. And yet they allowed this snake to have dominion over them they were tempted and they sinned and as a result humanity you could say became enslaved to the snake in the process now in response to this cosmic treason God punished this human couple by removing their royal authority but he also made them a promise. Now, this is in Genesis 3. If you remember, God punishes humanity by removing their royal authority. But you remember, God promises Eve. He gives a promise to the woman. And if you recall the promise, this is what he said. That one day, a descendant would come from the woman who would overthrow the snake and restore God's reign on the earth. And so, you know, it's funny, as a pastor, and this has actually happened recently, I often get asked, like, interesting extra-biblical questions. And they're really fun, and sometimes they're really hard to answer. So I kind of want to just bring you into one of those questions. Uh, A couple of times, or a few times in my life, I have been asked, and maybe you've wondered this yourself, why does the Bible, or the majority of the Bible, focus on, like, the Jewish people? Now, like, what about other ethnicities, right? What about other ancient civilizations? Like, like what about, the, you know, the ancient Egyptians or the Incas and Aztecs, the indigenous Americas? Like, why does the Bible seem to ignore other cultures? That's a pretty solid question. And usually, uh, folks are asking that question. They're, they're making, sometimes, sometimes, they're making an assumption. And it's one of two things. Either God just doesn't care. Right? Or, or the Bible is a biased text. But, but here's kind of the simple answer, and then we'll, we'll kind of unwrap it. Uh, uh, the reality is that in God's sovereignty, God chooses to bless the whole through the particular. This, is, this has been called the scandal of particularity, right? It's kind of scandalous. Like, why does God, like, God have a favorite people? Or, you know, it could be a little scandalous to some folks or offensive. But, but this is the scandal of particularity. And here's kind of a simple way to say that. It's the fact that God, in his sovereignty, has predetermined to love all people through a particular people. 
Or another way that we could say is that God in his sovereignty has predetermined to redeem all of humanity through one human being who would descend from one particular family line. Are you with me? This is why the first 11 chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 through 11, is about the entire human race. And then all of a sudden, in chapter 12, the Bible zeroes in on a man named Abraham. And from that point on, up until Christ, the Bible moves from focusing on all of humanity and begins to follow one man that becomes one family, that becomes one tribe, that becomes one nation. Now, I, I, I kind of maybe think that there's an encouragement and maybe a challenge in this. And we say this often here, but the Bible's not about you. Right? I mean, I, a lot of times, like, we open up the scripture and we just try to find, where am I at? Right? But the scripture isn't primarily about us. The scripture is about Jesus, who is the fulfillment of God's promise. This is why scripture pays attention to the Jewish people. And this is why Matthew opens his text with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I hope that was clear. If it's not, I'd love to have coffee. Now, here's what I want to do for the rest of our time together. I want to zero in on Abraham and I want to make four observations, and hopefully these observations will lead us to worship King Jesus, anticipate his coming, and maybe learn something. So four observations. Number one, looking at Abraham's life, I want to talk about four observations. Number one, I want to talk about God's choice, God's promise, Abraham's obedience, and then Abraham's blessing to the world. So hopefully... We can unpack that, and by the end of this, you can kind of take this fuzzy picture and be able to see Jesus clearly. Amen? Amen. God's choice. Abraham's story begins in Genesis 11, except Abraham is not called Abraham. Right? He's not the great father of the Jewish people. Like, he's just a dude named Abram living in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. Like he's just this random guy in the middle of a city called Ur. He's not Father Abraham. He, he's, not, he's not the great, the, the great father of the nation of Israel. Right, he, he's from Ur. This was before the Torah existed. This was before the law of Moses was given. This was before there was the nation of Israel and before the Jewish people. And before all of that here in Genesis 11, here's what you get. You get a pagan man named Abram who worshiped idols, chilling in the city of Ur. And I want you to see this. There was nothing attractive about Abram. And what I mean by that, there was nothing spiritually attractive. He was not godly and he was not good. He was an idol worshiper with no conscience of the true God. And yet, God determines to interrupt his life one day. God determines to not only interrupt his life, but then God determines to bless the world through his seed. 
Now, I have to stop because there's something uh, spectacular revealed to us about God in this particular space. You see, when God calls someone, it has nothing to do with their performance. When God calls a woman or a man, it has nothing to do with their ability, their intelligence, their popularity, their education, their class. It has nothing to do with their human efforts. God's call is rooted in God's sovereign choice and in his sovereign choice alone. Now, like, why is that even important? Like, what are you going to do with that information? Well, two things. Number one is so that you can't boast. It's so that nobody can boast. Like, nobody can take credit for what God does. Like, from start to finish, beginning to end, the story of redemption is not a work of man. In fact, when you read the story, whenever it does become the work of man, it starts getting all messed up. The story of redemption from beginning to end is not a work of man, but it's a work of God. This is God making the promise. This is God ensuring that the promise survives. And this is God fulfilling the promise. And this is us reaping the benefit from the promise keeper. And so God works this way so that nobody can boast. But secondly, God works this way because anybody can be called. I thought y'all would be excited about that. <laughs> right? So like if you're ever tempted to cringe at the dysfunction of Jesus' genealogy, which to be honest, I do. Like this is a real hard thing about Christianity. Like if you're ever tempted to question why God would use a liar and cheater like Jacob. Right? If you're ever tempted to question why God would use an abuser, adulterer, and a murderer like David. Like this gets really deep. Uh, there are people who have been raped and people who have like and who people who have raped. If if you're ever tempted to cringe, if you're ever tempted to question like I understand but, but here's the reality of it. And you can walk away today and just read, this is the reason why I'm not a Christian. I understand. But here is the truth of it all. If you're ever tempted to cringe, if you're ever tempted to feel that way, just look at your own life and thank God that he has a history of redeeming people's narratives. And thank God that he calls undeserving sinners like me. Like, thank God that he knows what you think. And yet, that doesn't disqualify you because the qualification is not based on your performance. It's a hard truth. And many folks have walked away. And, I, and, and, and you know, when I say I understand, I mean, don't, I, I want you to stay. But I can, I can empathize with why there would be questions in this area. And yet we serve a God who redeems narratives. And thank God that he forgives sinners. I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be standing on this stage. And so we move from God's choice in Abraham, Abram, 
some pagan idolater from Ur to God's promise. It's while Abram is in Ur that God calls him, are you ready, to leave his pagan roots behind. And anyone who has ever felt a tug from God or a call from God, like you can relate to that. You know what's amazing? When God calls a person, he says, go. Right? That's what we see in the text. If you look it up, Genesis 12, he'll say, go. And, you know, in order to go to a place, you actually got to leave a place behind. Like, that's the battle of obedience in some ways, right? Like, when God determines and decides, not based off your performance, he does, he does then call someone to go. And in order to go, you have to walk away. You have to leave things behind. And so what we see is that Abram is called by God to leave his pagan roots behind. You see, when God called Abram, he called him to leave behind his idolatrous comforts and worldly pursuits. He called him to leave behind his selfish ambitions. You can read it in the text. And godless passions. He called him to lay it down and leave his vision of the good life behind and to go to a place that God would show him. But here's what I love about God. God doesn't leave Abram hanging, though. And so though God will call him to go, to leave his home, to a place that he will show him, God will make him a promise. In fact, God makes Abram three extraordinary promises. Now, we are rolling through Abram's life, which is much longer than I'm giving you the Reader's Digest, but I hope you're keeping up. Amen? God makes three extraordinary promises to Abram. He says, Abram, get up, go, leave Ur to a place that I'm going to show you. And then he makes three promises. And here they are. The first promise is this, number one. He says, I will make you a great nation. And, and we realize, right, we have the luxury of looking back. Abram's descendants would become the nation of Israel. N- number two, God tells Abram, I will make you a great name. And some of you probably have been wondering, why are you calling him Abram? Well, God would change his name. See, when God called him, he was Abram. I love that, right? Like there, we have this particular identity of who we think we are. And then when God calls us, he changes it. And so Abram, would ch- God would change Abram's name to Abraham. And Abraham means exalted father. And he would come to know him. And now we actually would look back and come to know Abraham as not only the father of the Jewish nation, but we would call him the father of the faith. And finally, number three, God would bless Abraham, and this is the key. And then God told him, in him, in Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. So there's this promise. I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to give you a great name. And in you, Abraham, the whole world is going to receive a blessing. Like something is coming from inside Abraham that's going to bless the nations. Are you with me, church? Now, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament would do what we're doing right now. He would open up to Genesis 12, and he'd start to reflect on these promises that were made to his forefather, Abraham. And in Galatians 3, verse 8, here's what Paul will conclude. This is Apostle Paul in the New Testament reflecting on his Old Testament forefather, Abraham. Here's what he would say. He said this, that God, are you ready, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. 
And I'll explain this. Saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. That's what Galatians 3.8 says. I want you to get this. Paul points out 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, God was already preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to Abraham. Like God was basically calling his shot. Like God was telling Abraham what he was planning to do. And I want to move on from God's promise to God's blessing because y'all remember the promised descendant, right? Eve, right? The, they, Adam and Eve had fell and God had punished them and then God had promised them that from her, from her seed, a descendant would come that would overthrow the snake and restore God's rule, right? That promised seed of the woman who would one day overthrow the snake, restore God's rule on the earth was the same promised seed that would now come through Abraham and his family line. So here what we see throughout the Old Testament. God is making promises to people in their genealogies that somebody is coming through their line. Are you with me? So we see Abraham would have Isaac and Isaac would have Jacob and then Jacob would have 12 sons and those 12 sons would be the 12 tribes of Israel. And in Jacob's dying words, his final words in Genesis 49 to his 12 sons, Jacob would bless one of his sons, Judah. And Jacob would tell his son Judah that from your descendants, your descendants will have the authority to rule. In other words, as we become a nation, son, it's from your line that kings of this nation will rise up. Are you with me? And it's from Judah where we get the tribe of Judah. And it's from Judah where Israel gets its most celebrated king, King David. And God then will do what he always does is he's following the genealogical line. God will then promise David that one of his sons, one of his descendants would not just reign and rule, but would have an everlasting kingdom. Like David held on to the fact that one of his sons would one day rule and reign forever. Like there would be no more need for succession because someone is coming that would reign for eternity. And that reign would usher in joy and peace to the world. So Matthew writes the book of the genealogy of Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So I want to move from God's choice to God's promise, from Abraham's blessing to finally Abraham's obedience. Y'all doing okay? Yeah. And here's what I want to do. I want to give you two final observations from Abraham's obedience. I want to look at what Abraham does in response to God's promise. Like God promises him. And I want you to look at, I want to look at what Abraham does, his obedience. And I want to look at that obedience. And I, I kind of want to zero in on two final observations that I believe is kind of bring this picture home for us. Observation number one. When God calls a man or a woman, he calls them with generations in mind. I want to just like stay. I want to like bathe in this. I want to just stay here. I want to marinate in this. This just bless me this week. So if it doesn't bless you, I'm blessing myself this morning. Listen, when God calls a man or a woman, 
He calls them with generations in mind. And and I'm going to just be honest. Like, we really need to get over our westernized individualistic thinking. Like, it's killing us. It's killing us as a country. It's killing us as a church. Like, it, it really causes us to become, like, spiritually nearsighted. It, become, it causes us to be self-absorbed in our faith. Like it really causes a Christian in their individualism to really be like complacent and lazy with their faith. I want you to know, life is not about you. You know, when God called my grandmother on my mom's side, My grandmother was a widow. She had five daughters and one son. And she had experienced the loss of her husband in a tragic accident in which he was killed, hit and killed by a drunk driver. When God called my grandmother on my mom's side, she was a widow battling depression with five daughters and one son. And when God called my grandparents on my father's side, they were immigrating from Mexico to the United States. When God called them, he wasn't just thinking about my mom or my dad. He wasn't just thinking about uh, Philip Jr. or Philip III. When God called my grandparents, he was thinking about the thousands of lives that would be reached through their generations. Are you listening? He was thinking of the hundreds of prisoners that would give their lives to Jesus through my mother and father's prison ministry. He was thinking about the hundreds of lives that would be transformed by the gospel because a Spanish-speaking immigrant with no formal education, was obedient to God's call and planted churches in the United States. Two of them that exist today, one in Fremont, one in Livingston, that is preaching the gospel to migrant workers. It's not about you. It's not about me. When when, When God called my grandparents, he was thinking of Inspired Church. And, and he wasn't just thinking about you. He's thinking about Inspire 50 years from now. Like, have you ever went to those old churches that have, like, pictures of, like, their founders of the original folks? Right? You kind of look and, you know, you kind of laugh. Like, oh, man, that was their hair during that time. Why were they wearing that or whatever? Like, I pray, like, 100 years from now, people are looking at us in that way. Like, I pray by the mercy and grace of God that this church, if the Lord tarries and Christ doesn't come back, that it's still standing, still preaching the gospel. Because it wasn't about me. We can be so ignorant, right? To what God is really up to, right? Like we're playing checkers. And God's playing chess. (laughs) Like when God calls a man or a woman, he calls them with generations and genealogies in mind. It's not about you. Like, what, even what you're up against, right? it's not about you. Like, when God calls a man or a woman, he thinks about their families. He thinks about their friends. He thinks about their neighbors and their coworkers. Like, oftentimes we don't, but God is. 
Like when God calls a man or a woman, he changes the trajectory of bloodlines. Like histories of addiction, sexual perversion, histories of abuse are disrupted when God calls and we respond to that call in obedient faith. Now, I am not saying by any stretch of the imagination that when God calls someone, everything becomes perfect. In fact, most of the time, it actually gets more difficult. Like there's warfare. And I'm not saying that Christian homes and Christian families and ministry people, whatever, don't have their, there's tons of dark, scandalous secrets. But what I am saying is that when God calls a man or a woman, he's not just calling them, but he's speaking to the generations and family lines. And the calling of God is a disruptor. It is. And it's, and, and it's your sons and it's your daughters and it's their sons and their daughters and not all of them may serve the Lord. We can't choose for them. But even those that don't serve the Lord, there will be a definitive marker in the family line of God's faithfulness. Like they'll be able to look back and see the faithfulness of God. And there will be some that will lay their lives down. And there will be some that will follow Jesus and their generations and the generations beyond that. Like some of us, I don't think we, like the battles that you're fighting right now, like you may not even get victory in this life, but the victory that you're getting is for those that are coming in the future. Like stuff being passed down, being cut off because the Holy Spirit just, just came, as you received Christ, came into your life and sanctified you. Like, are you, it's not about you. Right? It's, it's so much bigger than your car. This is what, you, you know, we, we, our mission here is we just want to inspire disciples of Jesus. It's not to follow Christ when he says go to go. To look like him, live like him, love like him, talk like him. Right, it's much bigger than your car. It's much bigger than your career. It's much bigger than your house. It's much bigger than your retirement, your 401k, your stock options. Finally, and we're landing the plane, you guys are doing great. The scripture tells us, and again, Paul looking back on Abraham's life, will reveal that Abraham obeyed God. Like God called Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham. And then in response to those promises, Abraham went. He went. Didn't even know where he was going. And Paul, looking back on that, calls Abraham the father of the faith because it says this. Paul says that Abraham obeyed and God credited his obedience. Or it says Abraham, I'm sorry, Abraham, <laughs> Abraham believed. Abraham believed and God credited his belief as righteousness. What does that mean? And we're, we're almost finished. God calls Abraham. Then Abraham, then God promises Abraham. Now here's the deal. Abraham obeys God because Abraham believed God. Y'all get that? Like the obedience of Abraham was only because when God said something, Abraham actually believed that it was true. 
And the scripture says that Abraham's belief was accounted to him as if it was righteousness. Like even before he went, he believed and that belief was credited to him as if he was in right standing with God. Are you with me? And so how do we get to Jesus in this text? Well, Paul tells us that when God told Abraham that in him, the nations, the world will be blessed. That, and, Paul, and, and God would later tell Abraham that his seed, a descendant, is coming that will rule and, will rule and reign. And the descendant will bless the nations. Here's, here's the, the connection to Jesus. When Abraham believed God's word, when Abraham believed that in him somebody was coming that would bless the world, what Paul was saying is that Abraham was believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Abraham was looking forward to the coming of someone, just like we look back to the coming of somebody who changed everything. And so in the same way Abraham was accredited as righteous, so are we when we believe in Jesus. And so I want to say this, and then we're going to respond in song, and then we'll end in a prayer. But as we reflect in song, I want to just tell you the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. 2,000 years ago, God put on flesh and dwelt among us, was born in a manger. And for 33 and a half years, we believe that he walked a sinless life. We believe that he never broke a law, never broke a rule, but he was perfect. And then the scripture tells us that this perfect, innocent man was then criminalized in court and hung on a cross as if he was a lawbreaker. And what the scripture tells us that on that cross, two things happened. Number one, Jesus took upon himself our sin. Because we're all lawbreakers. There's nobody in this room that can say that they're perfect. Jesus was the only one perfect. On the cross, Jesus took our sin and put it upon himself. And what you see on the cross is Jesus being punished on our behalf. That's the gruesomeness of the cross. But that's not it. The gospel also says, and so anybody who believes, remember belief, anyone who believes that that's true, yes, I believe Jesus is the sinless son of God who suffered on my behalf. Anyone who believes that, who believes that is true, something else happened. Not only did you give your sin to Jesus and he was punished for you, but then Jesus gave you his 33 and a half years of perfection. And it was accredited to your account as if you were righteous. Like all of a sudden, a million dollars was put into your account, right? And so now God, the Father, when he looks down, he doesn't see the sin, the failure, and the stain of genealogies and generations, but he sees the blood of Jesus. And God declares you righteous, not by your performance, but because you had faith in Christ. And so that's what we celebrate. That's what Christianity is all about. And that's why we look forward. That's why we sing these songs. We light these candles to commemorate the beautiful story 
of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of God's promise, the blessing to the world. Thank you, Jesus. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that was foretold from the beginning. And Lord, we praise you because you have watched over your word, ensuring that it would come to pass. No matter how hard man tried in their own and failed, Lord, you have guided your word throughout history. And we thank you for your guidance. We thank you for your miracles. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your love. And ultimately, we thank you for Jesus, who is the ultimate fulfillment of your word. And it is in Christ the world is blessed. It's in Christ that the world is, be, will be made new. And so today, this morning, before we end, we not only look back and celebrate the coming of Jesus, but we also look forward to the day when he comes back and reigns as king and makes all things new. Lord, we believe that promise. We just thank you for all the fulfilled prophecies that continue to remind us that you are trustworthy. You're faithful. And so I pray you'd be with us as we leave this place. Let us not leave your presence. We ask these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you. 11 a.m. God bless you, Inspire Church. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next Sunday.